Welcome to Agile Rabbit, which is a partnership with the University of Exeter, um, putting on presentations, talks on a monthly basis. Today, um, it's a great privilege to have Julian Hector here, who is the uh, head of the Natural History Unit of the BBC, based in Bristol. Um, so Julian was born in Kenya, studied uh, zoology at the University of Bristol, uh, went out to uh, then work on seabird ecology um, in the Falkland Islands at a particularly sensitive time when a skirmish with the Argentinians meant that you were then holed up on one of the islands for, a, for longer than you perhaps planned, which yeah. is probably a really good window into filmmaking because you often get stuck it places. Was. Anyway, so Julian now is a, a producer, an editor at the Natural History Unit with lots of experience. Um, he was responsible for delivering Planet Earth 2, Blue Planet 2, Dynasties, so these landmark TV series, but also has contributed in amazing ways to radio. Also, Tweet of the Day um, was uh, Julian's cre uh, creation, uh, bringing live natural history onto the radio as well as the television. And without further ado, Julian, it's a great pleasure to have you here in Exeter. A complete pleasure. Lovely to see you all. Really, really great to be here. I, I just thought I was going to show you this. Uh, Mission Ocean X, it's called. We're making it for National Geographic. Yes. <laughs> Don't normally start talks as yes, but it is. It's really, so we're getting really serious about oceans. Obviously, Blue Planet 2 um, was a huge success. And um, so we're, we're, we're starting this one up with a big international collaboration. Here I am heading up the Natural History Unit. And uh, for a long, long time, we've made exclusively for the BBC. The BBC uh, is still... Uh, if you like, the most important um, organisation we make uh, programmes for. Uh, but if you don't know, a great chunk of the BBC, most of its production arm, uh, which includes the Natural History Unit, is now a commercial entity. If you like, uh, we have a single shareholder, which is the BBC. So in all that corporate jargon, we're still BBC Group. And what that means is, is that the Natural History Unit no longer has any guarantee of money from the Beeb and no guarantee of slots on the BBC because that's open to competition from any company. But it also means at the same time is that we can pitch ideas to networks anywhere in the world and make for them and or in collaboration with the BBC. So uh, we have just uh, delivering our first ever big conservation series big conservation film actually for Discovery that we've made only for Discovery. It won't be seen on the BBC. And it's got a working title of Red List. And you probably, uh, if you've got biological backgrounds, you'll know that that's the, uh, the list which has got all the kind of critically endangered species on. And we've been around the world looking at the incredible heroes trying to reverse that trend. Mission Ocean X is going to do something um, in the oceans. An incredible ship called the Aleutia 2, which is just fitting now and it's nail-biting because it was supposed to be ready some time ago and they're so hard to put together. But this extraordinary ship is going to be a combination of TV studio, marine scientists and the two together exploring one ocean after another. So look out for that. What I want to um, talk about this evening is to talk about the power of storytelling. If there's one message I want to get across today with the environment and climate crisis that uh, we're so manifestly in now is that the, the importance of um, activities like mine um, fitting in with all of yours, and uh, I, you probably come from wide backgrounds and all involved in one way or another, perhaps in conservation or research or just interested, but just how powerful stories are 
in linking and sort of connecting people to the issues and how important that is with uh, the enormous amount of work that people are doing over the world and have been for a long time understanding uh, all these, these natural systems and, uh, and the role that we can play in that. Now, um, one of the things that's cropped up, which research is yielding more and more, and something that we've become increasingly interested in, is the minds uh, of animals, what sort of beings creatures are. What is coming out more and more, all the sort of sources that come to me and contacts from around the world, is that all animals are, um, are capable of so much more than we've given them credit for. And, and understanding the intentions of animals, if you like, sort of their plan, this sort of concept that an animal might have a plan, um, gives us, as storytellers, uh, a really new, powerful scene in which to um, tell their story. One of the big struggles we've had in linking animal life histories, if you like, with really big phenomena like climate change, which we're also incredibly worried about, is how you show climate change in an emotional and meaningful way such that those connections can be made with big audiences. And we're doing it now increasingly with the collaborations that we have with scientific organisations all over the world, not least the British Antarctic Survey. We've been working with them for a long time and the work that they're doing on albatrosses. Now, if any of you have been watching our latest blockbuster go out, Seven Worlds, One Planet, going out at quarter past six on a Sunday, you might have seen the first episode on Antarctica. And there, we ran a sequence which we filmed on Bird Island, South Georgia, of a grey-headed albatross, um, which was struggling to raise its chick. And we were linking this directly to climate change. You know, you know the protagonist you know, is, the, is the extreme weather there, which has blown the chick off. I'm sure you're aware of the incredible proximity as well to the animal, which was sort of mind-blowing. So that's storytelling. That's, that's emotional storytelling, where, uh, where you're seeing and understanding the intention of the animal, like in a soap opera. So characterization, uh, getting to know an individual, and the endeavor that the individual is trying to do Anyway, I, I don't know whether you're all feeling it now, but one of the great uh, sort of Twitter storms around the sequence here of the grey-headed albatross trying to, to raise its chick was, why are they so thick? You know, <laughs> and um, why doesn't the albatross recognise it on the ground and sort of help it up and everything else? And uh, if any of you are seabird biologists, you might, might correct me, but the sort of long answer to that we didn't have time for in the film. But, but albatrosses, when they're coming back to the nest, they, the, the greyhead raises a chick every other year. And the ocean is a very, very difficult place to feed. Both parents equally share in parental feeding. So you can see this huge effort to sort of raise their chick. And actually, uh, albatross parents coming back laden with food from the ocean do not succumb to being solicited by other chicks. And penguins do, for example. And so um, that's why, presumably, you know, the greyhead has evolved not to give food with a chick that's not on its nest. And that greyhead will come back to that nest uh, for the whole of its life. So unless a chick is in its nest, it won't feed it. But there you go, that's, that's an important thing about intense storytelling, sort of understanding more about the mind of the animals. And I think that is something which has evolved enormously with our work in recent landmarks like Blue Planet 2 and Planet Earth 2 and Dynasties. Not only have we technically innovated, where we've got you closer, the big sort of promise, if you like, of the natural history unit to give you the close-up, but we've also heavily innovated in storytelling. 
and a great deal more of the stories that we're now telling are about individuals and uh, the kind of endeavour of individual animals, or so, even if they're a group, you know, what their group endeavour is too. We can be out in the field for weeks and weeks and not a great deal happens, or we're, we're working with animals to allow them to get close to us for weeks and weeks and weeks in order to film unique animal behaviour. Well, for Blue Planet 2, we wanted to find behaviour that people hadn't seen before, audiences hadn't seen before. And uh, we were very aware, particularly in, in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, we were aware that several sort of bleaching events were happening. And we went back there in subsequent years. We weren't intending to film bleaching because it's a very difficult thing to film in real time. But we came across a story of, of cooperative hunting where we could link the cooperative hunting with coral bleaching event, another massive theme in Blue Planet 2. And again, my point being is that we wanted to make an emotional connection uh, with the animals, with the sequence, to link it to, uh, to climate change, in this case, oceanic warming, such that audiences could really feel the weight that climate change is having on the environment. Well, here we are, a really wonderful piece of behaviour where an octopus is cooperatively feeding with a grouper. That last image, look at it, the sort of octopus and the grouper sitting in a trashed home. Um, not quite trashed, they can, they can recover, but um, that wasn't the intention to film a bleaching event with those two characters. But again, filmed over two years in the full sequence in Blue Planet 2, we could uh, allow you all as audiences to get to know these two species um, as characters. And then, uh, once you sort of understood and empathised with their plans and their intentions and what they were trying to do, when the environment around them completely changed, so you understood even more the significance of coral bleaching. And that got an enormous amount of resonance as well, which we're very pleased about. One of the other powerful things about natural history filmmaking, and it defines us, and not uniquely us, but it defines us in the BBC Natural History Unit, is not only finding new perspectives on animal behaviour, but getting new animals and new animal behaviour. And uh, it's very important for us. We collaborate with institutions and scientists all over the world. We're in touch with them all the time to try and find new things which fit in. With the series that's just running at the moment, Seven Worlds, One Planet, one of the episodes was one of, I think, in some ways, one of the best films that we've ever made. It was about Asia. Interestingly, when the film was broadcasting, some of the most hardened people I know that are in, in this country that are involved in rural affairs and have quite rural lives, as it were, were incredibly struck by the time-lapse images we broadcast about deforestation in Asia. It really struck them just how much was happening. But sometimes we, um, we, we are going away from those sorts of stories, which we're including in our landmarks more and more, and just looking for new species and new behaviour. And this one was absolutely intriguing. Uh, so collaborators of collaborators, a complex country to film in. This was filmed in Iran, this sequence. And we acquired this sequence through contacts that we have uh, in the industry. And I think it was the first time it had been broadcast. But have a look at this sequence first, and then I'll talk about it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
And doesn't that just say so much about uh, what biodiversity is all about? You know, what role does that snake play in the desert ecosystem of the Middle East? And as far as we know, that lives in just one restricted area of Iran. We don't know um, much more about it than that at the moment. And the flycatcher, you know, and everything else that's involved there. And uh, we've only just, only just been discovered, uh, and there it is, and incredible behaviour. A lot of people don't like spiders and don't like snakes, and the kind of, it brings the two together, you know, that's it. And sort of, which, um, which we absolutely love, and we could feel the audience up and down the country sort of wincing. But it also, um, it says an awful lot. But the, the, the kind of serious point for us is the how important it is to feel awestruck and to love the natural world, that it's all, always sort of wondrous and surprises you. Because surprise is incredibly important. And when it comes to sort of delivering all these ideas about why we should look after the natural world, it's more, isn't it, than it just keeps us alive. There's wider values about the sort of heritage value, about sharing the planet with an incredible diversity of other plants and animals which have all evolved. And there is just a beautiful example with the horned spider-tailed viper of an extraordinary creature that lives in a faraway land of which we appear to have no relationship with, but it's there, and isn't that wonderful? Uh, one of the reasons I came here, of course, was to uh, this evening, which I'm very pleased to, is to talk about the value of these big landmarks, and that's really what I'm talking about this evening. We do a number of other things, but these big landmarks. I've been showing a, a clip from Blue Planet 2 and also Seven Worlds, and 2016, uh, you might have remembered that uh, Planet Earth 2 broadcast. Now, the significance of these things in this country and all over the world is that they're seen by many, many people. And um, as you can see, Planet Earth 2 here, uh, which was broadcast in, uh, in 2016, the most watched natural, natural history title in the UK for 15 years, getting 13.1 million per episode. In this, country, in this country, it's amazing. And bringing in much, much younger audiences, 3.2 million younger audiences too. Uh, do you remember Planet Earth 2? Do you remember the snake and iguana scene? Yeah. I um, haven't brought the clip of it because I know you've all seen it, but 400 million plus viewers of that as a viral online clip. And people discovered DVDs again, which is absolutely wonderful. DVDs are an odd format now to sell, uh, but one of the important things about uh, these big natural history landmarks, which this data sort of shows, is that right now, appointment to view telly, whether it be scheduled on something like BBC One, uh, or even if it's from a streamer, but basically a shared experience, sitting, if you like, on the sofa watching telly with others is not dead, and that's what's good about that. And DVD sales reflect that too. Uh, Blue Planet 2 was the other one that, of course, uh, came out in 17. This was enormous. 62% of the UK population watched Blue Planet 2, 37.6 million people. And it was also the most watched title in the UK in 2017, uh, which is absolutely amazing. In China, we, which we co they co-produce on the Tencent platform, uh, 250 million plus people watched Blue Planet 2 there. And um, as you can see here in the middle, there's a sequence where uh, we were telling a story about the likelihood that pollutions carried by plastics in the ocean might have killed a whale calf and the mother was holding her dead calf. And, um, and everyone was incredibly moved about that too. Uh, the plastics campaign, which Blue Planet 2 
uh, triggered. And as I say, what was really important about this, there's been, there's been lots of work on reducing plastics in the environment. I mean, I've known about it for 20 plus years. And when I was um, working on Bird Island doing my PhD on albatrosses, I used to help a friend who was studying the food and feeding behaviour of albatrosses there. We'd make wandering albatrosses and other albatrosses sick into a bucket so that we could study the food that they were feeding. And we sort of held them, a bit like playing a bagpipe. You'd pick them up and you sort of give them a sort of squeeze like that and they'd vom in a bucket. And then see what they were feeding on. Don't worry, the, the, the adult and the chick uh, are fine. We didn't do it that often in any one individual. But even then, in the early 80s, we were picking up things like flip-flops and dolls' heads and plastic tops in the, in the diet of albatrosses. And of course, it's got much, much worse. But I think the power of telling the story of plastic pollution in Blue Planet 2 with these overwhelming numbers of people coming to it with that sort of emotional storytelling allowed all the activities around the world around plastic pollution and the research institutions as well to sort of conjoin. And it has become an enormous wave of activity, which has got a very long tail that's still going. A poll in 2018 indicated that nearly 9 in 10 people, that's 88%, who engaged with the, the digital activity around Blue Planet 2, are Blue Planet, have changed their approach to using plastics. That's incredible. That's really powerful. And in March this year, 170 countries pledged to significantly reduce the use of plastics by 2030 at the United Nations Environment Assembly in Nairobi. Mass audiences are recognising big change. That's one of the biggest things that I've seen recently is a recognition of big change in the world. And of course, the big story now is to talk about big change. But on to some more audience data, just as the, the Asia episode of Seven Worlds, One Planet, you can see sort of Twitter activity going up to 200 a minute. And this is minute by minute as the episode runs. If any of you have seen it, there was a very dynamic war sequence at the front end um, where some of their behavior is being changed by ice melt in the Arctic. You've seen the spider snake and Sonorian lizard, I think. And at the end of the show, the making ofs. And you can see how Twitter activity it really engages around certain sequences. They reacted rather like you did, you know, to the, um, the, sp the horned spider-tailed viper. And everyone loves the making of. And this is evidence to us that there is genuine engagement in the show. And they're talking about it. And they talk about it on Twitter and do more. And I just thought I'd show you a series that we broadcast last year called Dynasties, and this is where we had a completely different approach. We um, spent up to 600 filming days on a single individual group of animals, whether it be emperor penguins or chimpanzees or, or wild dogs. And what was really interesting about the audience data with Dynasties is that a million people came to Dynasties that don't watch any natural history at all. And not only that, Dynasties drew and skewed very young as well. And the evidence seems to be that audiences that naturally go to drama were coming to the dramatic storytelling that we did in Dynasties, a completely different sort of show, but where we, we showed, if you like, how power moves around uh, in animal groups. Uh, to finish, I um, just wanted to say a couple of things to reiterate just how important uh, making an emotional connection is to the natural world. Um, in telling these big stories about the environment. In 2014, BBC World Service did a global survey. Um, I can't remember how many countries it was. It was over 30. And they asked 
individuals in all of those countries to upload all their images that they wanted to upload for them, which portrayed freedom. And uh, interestingly, a majority of the pictures uploaded to this uh, World Service Initiative were images of the natural world, showing that people from all over the world of different faiths and different backgrounds use the natural world as their sort of icon for freedom as well, which I think is a really lovely sort of thought. And I think we feel that all ourselves. Pleasure to be with you this evening. Thank you very much. Yes, I mean Bristol, just up the road, is the world capital for wildlife filmmaking. And that's great. It's down here, it's right on your doorstep. And Bristol doesn't just have us in the natural history unit, it's got a, a thriving a community of independent companies too, doing incredibly well. And uh, my advice is that a biological background is useful and important, but what I really want to say is that I don't want the sort of wildlife filmmaking sort of industry to look like an incredibly sort of elite, impenetrable world. And I know we might have presented it like that um, in the past. And it isn't actually, but what, it, what is needed is an absolute passion to tell stories. My advice is to tell those stories, that we have much more access now to um, cameras on phones and different platforms. It doesn't have to be far away, but just sort of get into trying to tell stories in a visual way, in an emotional way. And it doesn't have to be um, finessed or anything, but just get interested in that. And then look out for roles in the wildlife filmmaking companies. I mean, a researcher is a fantastic role, right at the heart of production. But researchers now are increasingly needing to be quite experienced at being able to translate research that they have found into television, if you like, and how you might film something. But we are now offering roles as junior researchers, so don't get put off by the word junior. It just means that you're slightly earlier on the slope of experience. And even runner roles, both runner roles in uh, production, but also runner roles in post-production, that the, the, um, the houses which do all the stuff after we've come back and filmed all the editing and stuff and runners whiz around the place, making sure that everything is lubricated and everything is working. Uh, also roles in so-called production management, which is the administration around the delivery of these programmes, budgets and the planning and the logistics. Just get in and get involved and show, when you talk to people, that passion for storytelling. That's my advice. Like large studies in the UK have shown that ethnic minorities and uh, lower classes engage with nature a lot less I am sort of profoundly driven by this. So yes, I think it's an expression coined by the university sector. You know, the natural world is a global commons and it belongs to everybody. And the different perspectives of the natural world are very important in, in the storytelling of that global commons. And one, one of the ways that I have to act in my role there is to make sure that those perspectives in a sustained and proper way are brought into the whole sort of research 
and storytelling and production activities. We work very hard to try and encourage people from different ethnicities and different socioeconomic backgrounds to know that a career, an opportunity in wildlife filmmaking could be theirs. Something which I can say, which, is, which we're very proud of, is that we're in our eighth year now with the University of West of England in Bristol running a master's in wildlife filmmaking. They do the teaching, but we do all the mentoring. It has 15 students a year, and uh, a lot of those students come from very diverse backgrounds. That's part of our condition of being involved. It was, it was our idea, but it's been very successful, and I think it's 100% employment rate off the back of that course. And all of those people now are having, and they continue to have, flourishing careers in Bristol and there's an example of making sure that we can make our walls as porous as possible and to open up the opportunities as much as possible. Um, you know, in terms of cultural change and the need for it you know, towards sustainability and things, um, obviously these films that have been coming out for 30 years now maybe have huge, had a huge impact in a beneficial way. It is often said that cultural change really occurs because of philosophical shift in society and I wanted to ask you how you felt that these films were, were contributing in some way towards perhaps an unwritten, yet as yet unwritten, sort of philosophical shift. That, that, would be, um, that would be an amazing essay to write, wouldn't it? It's a, really, it's a really profound question. I think our relationship with the natural world is changing and we're seeking a new relationship with it. And as we enter a really critical period of our era, that relationship is being really tested. On a, on a very upbeat and sort of positive note, I'm seeing more and more things coming to me which are about showing kindness to the natural world. So a, a shift from being at war with it, which I think we have to admit for generations we have been, to something where we have to have a sort of shared space approach. I think our programmes are beginning to, with the science um, helping us, this is what's terribly important, beginning to show, particularly you know, in the animal world, that they're remarkable and that even the most simple creatures are so much more able than we've ever given them credit for. And I think there's a big shift there. I think you've had your hand up so long in the front, haven't you? Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, going back to like, the making of the shows, how do you decide which species, and in the case of like, dynasties, which individuals you should kind of put on screen to have the biggest impact when there's such a large choice? Mm. It's a very sort of complex, complex and uh, so it's research. Um, it's our relationship with scientists because we can only get anywhere near these things if we have very good collaborations and partnerships with scientists who like us and can help us get close and that we all benefit from it. It's sort of freshness of story, whether we think that we're going to be saying something new, a new perspective, and cost. There's so many factors, but also uh, there's a audience thing as well. In some ways, some of the biggest stories are on some of the tiniest animals. And audiences still like and emotionally engage with sort of fairly well-known animals that they like to see new perspectives of. So there's a bit of a rub there, but it's a very complex process, which is one of the, one of the roles why we hire so many researchers to give us as many options that we can discuss. Given some of the focus of the unit, and um, the, in the across the genre more broadly, it's about change that's happening, um, what might happen in the future, um, what action might need to be taken. Do you think natural history um, is a, an appropriate title still for the, the genre, or could something else be more appropriate? I love the word natural history. 
but I've been sort of, I've sort of grown up with it. With the environmental stories, you know, in these big landmarks now, which, is, which I, th I think has come just in time, that's more about meeting the today's world. You know, that's the world we live in and a genuine audience expectation that we are looking at that, not ignoring it. But I think, I think natural history is rather wonderful. I mean, I suppose, I mean, the ultimate title for any natural history show is probably something like The Living World. But natural history has a le level of learnedness about it, as well as saying exactly what it is, I think. But I, th I think one thing that you're starting to talk about is the natural future. You know, and it's something that at the University of Exeter, the Global Systems Institute, really focuses on, trying to think about taking us beyond the Gaia, where mm. we're at war with nature. Mm. How can humans reintegrate with the natural world, sure, become part of the natural living system in yeah. a really holistic way? Absolutely. Um, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, one last question. Okay. Sorry, just briefly. Um, some years ago, environmentalists were always on about uh, being carbon neutral. Are you? Really, really important question. The Natural History Unit, um, we travel in very, very small teams, actually. And now we are, the whole time, trying to be as efficient as we possibly can. So moving the smallest numbers of people around the world and where possible, employing local people to do the majority of the work, including the camera work and things. Sometimes we do have to move specialist equipment around. And when we have been completely efficient in that way, then we calculate very carefully our, our carbon emissions. And then in an appropriate way, we're paying our offsetting bill. But we are balancing the power of our programs and being as efficient as possible, employing local people as possible, uh, Frozen Planet 2, which is coming up in um, 2021, in the, in the widest sense, because it's quite a difficult subject, will be our first major carbon neutral production, where from the get-go uh, we have calculated absolutely everything and that we have also built in every single possible efficiency to reduce our carbon footprint as much as possible. I mean, what you'd like to do is to sum the amount of turns down on a thermostat that go on around the world in yeah. response to some of these programmes. Without this storytelling, the conversation yeah. isn't global. No, exactly. So it's very powerful. Okay, I think we should probably draw a line under this evening, but can we all say <laughs> a fantastic thank you to Julian Pleasure. for a wonderful talk.